Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Story is told of a lady who was very old fashioned, always delicate, always graceful in how she spoke. And she was planning a week's vacation in Florida. So she wrote a letter to a specific campground asking for a reservation. She wanted to make sure the campground was fully equipped, but she didn't know how to ask about the toilet facilities. She just couldn't bring herself to write the word toilet in her letter. So after thinking about it, she came up with the old fashioned term bathroom commode. But even when she wrote that down, she still thought it was just being a little bit too blunt, too forward, out of place. So she started all over again, and she rewrote her entire letter, referring to the bathroom commode as the B.C. Does the campground have its own B.C., is what she wrote. But when the campground owner got the letter, here was his problem. He just couldn't figure out exactly what she meant, what this woman was talking about. He didn't know what she meant by BC. He showed the letter to several different people, but they couldn't figure it out either. The man finally came to the conclusion that the lady must be asking about the local Baptist church. So he sat down and wrote the following reply. What could go wrong? Here's the reply. I regret very much the delay in answering your letter, but I now take pleasure in informing you that a BC is located nine miles north of the campground (laughs) and is capable of seating 250 people at once. I admit it is quite a distance away if you're in the habit of going often, but no doubt you'll be pleased to know that a great number of people take their lunches along and make a day of it. They usually arrive early and stay late. It's such a beautiful facility, and the acoustics are fantastic. (laughs) The last time my wife and I went was six years ago, and it was so crowded we had to stand up the whole time we were there. It may interest you to know that right now a supper is planned to raise money to buy more seats. I would like to say that it pains me very much to not be able to go more often, but surely it is no lack of desire on my part. As we grow old, it seems to be more of an effort, especially in the cold weather. And if you do decide to come to our campground, perhaps I could go with you the first time, sit with you and introduce you to all the other folks. Remember, this is a friendly community. Well, I did ask Angie if I could use that (laughs) about five times. It passed the Angie test. Therefore, we know we're good. All right. Nothing else. It highlights the importance of knowing your subject and keeping it all in context. Can I get an amen on that? 
In Revelation chapter 1, the subject this morning is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And now it becomes Christ standing in the midst of his churches. In verse 9, it starts by telling us this, I, John, your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, where was he? On the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, John does not introduce himself as an apostle. John doesn't start bragging about himself. John doesn't become all arrogant in this letter. Instead, he says, your brother and your companion, another testimony of this man's humility. John's concern was that they shared something in Jesus Christ. And what is it? He says, we share in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Now, we see that word tribulation, and we're in the book of Revelation, so we start thinking this must refer to the tribulation. But it's not a reference to that on this occasion. It's not a reference to the coming seven years of tribulation for the nation of Israel. It cannot be, because if it was, then the tribulation would have taken place already way back in 95, 96 A.D., All that the word tribulation means is the troubles, the pressures that come from living in a world that is hostile to Jesus Christ. And boy, can we see that ever today just by turning on the TV. This was the battle that the first century Christians faced every single day because the Roman Empire was after the saints of God. The Christians were suffering for their faith, yes, but they could look forward. They could look forward to the eternal rule of Jesus Christ. And they could trust that the Holy Spirit would continue to work in them, that even though they were suffering, they would develop the patience and endurance of Christ despite being hunted down for their faith. This was the common bond that they had in Christ. But that is where John took comfort. Because at the time, where was John? John was on the island of Patmos. And as we've said before, Patmos was nothing more than just a rocky little island that is only about 13 square miles. I mean, this is not your vacation spot. It's 35 miles off the coast of Asia Minor. Had to be a very lonely time for the Apostle John to be on this island, banished to this rocky place. The Roman Emperor Domitian used this against the Christians who refused to worship him. Believers were being burned at the stake. Others were being thrown to wild beasts. But if you happened to be a Christian leader, then it was different. If you happened to be a Christian leader like the Apostle John, the fear was that if they killed you, they would make you a martyr. They would stir up the people against the leadership of the Roman Empire. So they feared that loss of control in the government. So they banished men like John. They were banished to different places, but John was banished to the island of Patmos. And even though John was an old man, he was forced to work hard labor, hard labor in the mines at Patmos. Now Domitian was so afraid, it is said, he was so afraid of any threats to his power and the talk of Christians about this kingdom of God. What is this kingdom of God that you're talking about? That he sought out, it is written, the descendants of King David, and he called in the grandsons of our Lord's half-brother, Jude. And Domitian questioned them about the kingdom of Jesus Christ and whether they were heirs to this throne. But the grandsons of Jude explained that the kingdom of Christ would not be established until the end of the world. And they didn't have any money. They showed him that they had no money. They were no threat. So Domitian, he released them. 
And eventually John himself was freed after Emperor Domitian died in 96 AD. But John returned, John returned to Ephesus. And John tells us in verse 9, what does he say? That he was sent to Patmos for why? Very important wording. It says, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. See, John was one of many that we see in the Bible in a long line of men who suffered for their faith. Think of Moses. Where did Moses write the Pentateuch? Moses wrote the Pentateuch in the wilderness. How about David? Let's think of him. He wrote many of the Psalms while being chased around by Saul. Isaiah certainly didn't have it easy, did he? Isaiah, he lived in difficult days and died a martyr's death. Ezekiel wrote in exile. Jeremiah's life was filled with trials, constant trials. It was horrible and persecution. Peter wrote his two short letters right before he died for the faith. And I think it is very fitting that the final revelation of the word of God was given to John while suffering for Christ and while suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What I'm telling you is this. Get off the mindset that God owes you something better in this world. He owes you nothing, but he has shown you grace. Then in verses 10 and 11, John continues by telling us, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. John says he was in the spirit. Now, on the one hand, we absolutely need to recognize that every believer in Christ should be living in the Spirit of God, under the control of the Spirit of God and not the flesh. But John doesn't have that in mind. John has something more in mind. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul over in Ephesians 3, as Paul wrote about the revelation that had been given to him. Paul said this, he says, as it has now been revealed by, or you could put in the spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. See, the wording there is by or in the spirit, meaning that God, God was using Paul. God was using who? The apostles to communicate his message to the redeemed in Christ, to us, to believers in Jesus Christ. And this is how John is using this wording back in Revelation 1, that John was in the spirit, that John was in the spirit. John was being used as a channel of communication by our Lord. And one of the things that we will see as John used this phrase again is that when John was in the spirit, the spirit of God was making it possible, making it possible for John to experience and witness things that would have been impossible otherwise. The revelation that John was given came on the Lord's day. That's pretty cool. This is the last living apostle of Jesus Christ. The last one living in exile for serving his Savior, for serving his Lord. And it should not surprise us that this revelation of Christ came to John 
on the Lord's day. Because this is when the church gathered for worship. It was not on the Sabbath. Get that out of your head. It was not on the seventh day of the week, but on the first day, the Lord's day. And notice the careful wording of verse 10. This voice came from behind John. Now that's how you know God has a sense of humor. It had to scare him something fierce. <laughs> and it was not a trumpet he heard. It was a voice like a trumpet, it says. It was a loud voice. And the idea of the trumpet is to both tell us that it was loud. It was loud and it tells us that the voice spoke with authority. Follow the wording on the New King James. The one speaking is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's clear from the reference, I am the Alpha Omega, the first and the last. John was in the spirit when suddenly he was made aware that the Lord himself had shown up to be with him on the Lord's day. That's pretty cool, isn't it? That's pretty cool. The Lord himself showed up. Now, John was told to write down what he witnessed in a book and send it to the seven churches. And the word here for book, it's kind of interesting because you say, wait a minute, they didn't have books back then, did they? Well, the word for book is the word biblion, which is where we get the word Bible from. And it just means a scroll. That's all it means. And the revelation John was to receive was to be written down on a scroll, which it's been estimated. And I don't know who does this stuff, but it's been estimated that if this was first recorded on one scroll, just one scroll, it would have been about 15 feet long. Now with our map that we've been using, back to this map, you can see the seven churches listed. And if you were traveling, if you were going along and traveling to each of these churches, you would follow the main roads. And the order of the churches listed in our Bible is the same as the cities that are listed. That's the exact order that you would come upon them. Each church listed was roughly 40 to 50 miles from the next church listed. And there's a reason for this. You see, the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire built one of the most advanced postal delivery systems known in the world at that time. The postal systems covered the entire Mediterranean world because this was the way the government communicated with its people and with one another. See, the, the government had a purpose for this. The government needed to be able to communicate to the Roman governors and the military leaders in the distant provinces throughout the empire. Because without that communication, what happens? The Roman Empire would have fallen apart. So what they did was they developed what they called the public course. They created these, these routes, these postal routes, roads that they could travel on with relay stations. Relay stations set all throughout, set up at intervals. And they could, with speed, dispatch different government documents all throughout the empire. And it's something that we couldn't even equal again in Europe until the 19th century, how fast they could get these documents throughout the Roman Empire. Riders could cover about 170 miles in a 24-hour period. Now, that doesn't seem like much to us today when we can hop on a plane, but back then, that's moving. That's hauling. So each of these seven churches listed were the cities that were centers of the seven postal districts in Asia. Now, to get this revelation to the churches, Christians used their own messengers following the same path as the Roman postal route. 
a messenger would present the scroll to his own church before the messenger would copy it by hand and it would be taken on to the next church. Take a look at verses 12 and 13 with me. Let's read it. It says, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about by the chest with a golden band. Now these were lampstands, not candlesticks. If you're using the King James Here we have John turning to see this voice. He hears this loud voice. He turns. It's a natural thing to do. You hear something like that, you're going to turn and look to see who's speaking to you. And right in the midst of the seven golden lampstands was one like the Son of Man. And I think that's a beautiful picture because it shows us that Jesus Christ is in the center of it all. In Exodus 37, verse 17, we see the lampstand in the tabernacle. Now, the lampstand in the tabernacle was made of pure gold. It had one base with the seven branches. You've seen pictures of it. It was a symbol for the nation of Israel of their testimony of God on earth. When the nation of Israel failed to keep their testimony for the Lord, the lampstand was removed from them. We see this in 2 Chronicles 36, where all the articles of the house of God were taken off to Babylon. This will be fully restored. It will be fully, completely restored during the coming kingdom of Christ. Zechariah 4 verse 11 gives the picture of a lampstand that represents Israel as a light to the nations during the millennial reign of Christ. Now, here's where we follow this, okay? Stick with me. The lampstand is a symbol of the true testimony of God. Let me say it again. The lampstand is a symbol of the true testimony of God. Jesus Christ was rejected on earth and received in glory, but while he is gone, he left a testimony for God, didn't he? During the time of his physical absence, and the lampstands represent that testimony. In the Old Testament, there was one lampstand that represented the nation of Israel. Here we have not just one, we have seven individual lampstands that are separate from each other. Why the difference between the old and the new? You see, the single lampstand represented in the Old Testament the entire nation of Israel. But now in the church age, each lampstand represents a congregation, a church. See, we have a lampstand. That's our witness for Jesus Christ. And the fact that there are seven lampstands and that Christ is in the midst of them tells us that these seven separate lampstands represent those seven local churches. And what unites, hear me on this point, what unites these churches is not some church authority invented by men, not the Catholic Church, not the Pope, not a denominational authority, But what unites them is their common relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Here in chapter one, the scene is taking place on earth and we are told of lampstands. And in verse 16, we are told of stars giving the idea of a of a night scene, really, or at the very least darkness where there is a need for light. And it shouldn't surprise us. Because often in the Word of God, we're given this image of of darkness as describing the time of the Lord's absence from the earth. 
which is why there's a need for a witness, which is why there's a need for lampstands to reflect the truth of Christ. And this is so consistent with the word of God. Malachi 4.2 speaks of the time when the sun will rise. Second Peter 1.19 teaches us right now that the prophetic word is a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Meaning in both Malachi and Peter that the time will come when the Son of Man returns. And then take this phrase at the beginning of verse 13 in our text. It says, in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Think of how this presents Christ. He's not some far off distant God that cannot be reached. He's not some God that we can't communicate with, that we're so out of touch with him, we can't even respond or, or pray with him because he's just that distant from us. This presents Jesus Christ standing in the midst of his churches. And the title, Son of Man, is used 81 different times in the Gospels. It could be because it's important to refer to the humanity of Christ. Why? Because Christ is the perfect man as God himself intended. Notice carefully that the New King James says that John saw one like the Son of Man. It points to the truth that this is more than just a man. This is also God. This is the God-man who has been given the authority to execute judgment on mankind. Look at the words of John chapter 5. Verse 26 says this in the Gospel of John. It says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Now watch verse 27. This is the part I want you to see. And has given him authority to execute judgment also because why? He's the Son of Man. He's the Son of Man. It is the role of the Son of Man to judge. And the reason is that Christ is referred to the Son of Man when speaking of judgment is right here. It is because of in his humanity, it qualifies him to be the judge of man. God entrusted judgment to a man, and this is the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the judge of the churches on the earth. If you're looking for a good movie to watch, Red Tails. Has anybody seen it? It's a very good movie. It's a great movie. It tells the story during World War II of how some outstanding pilots, how some outstanding black pilots changed the nature of the war. Because in the old days, the U.S. War Department was racist, extremely racist. And in 1925, before this took place, a U.S. War Department study said that the African Americans were inferior, and they were cowards, not worth trusting in the heat of battle. Well, two decades later, they would be proven wrong by the highly skilled flying of an all-black group of pilots known as the Tuskegee Airmen. Now, it is a fantastic movie. I really enjoyed it. But there's one part, one part, if you've seen it, you might know where I'm going. There's one part I really did not like. See, in the movie, several of the pilots are Christians who believe prayer is the key to staying safe in combat. And one of the characters in the movie, he carries a picture of an African-American savior who he calls Black Jesus. And at one point he prays, he says, Black Jesus, we thank you for bringing Red Squadron home. 
Now, it was probably meant tongue-in-cheek, but let's not. Let's not make God in our image. Jesus was not black. Jesus was not white. Jesus was born a Hebrew. Darker skin than most of us in this room. Much darker than most of us in this room. We look like pale milk toast. Darker skin than most of us, but not black either. Really, not black. It wasn't black. He came as a man. He did. But now... Guys, he's risen from the dead. He's risen from the dead. He is glorified in heaven with the Father. And that's something that John's trying to communicate to the church in Revelation chapter 1. And so if you want to think of what Jesus looks like now, these verses in Revelation chapter 1 would be a good place to start. And in verse 13, the Son of Man is presented as being clothed with a garment, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. This garment represents the authority of Christ. It represents his authority, like the clothing of someone with authority, like a judge. The idea is that the Son of Man is the judge of men. And notice the last part of the verse, girded about the chest with a golden band. The golden band at the height of the chest was often used to signify the dignity of the king. And verse 14 tells us of Christ. It says, His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. The head and hair of Christ being white like wool and white as snow, this represents purity, this represents wisdom, this represents maturity. And eyes, eyes like a flame of fire. It makes me think of a God that is truly able to see all, all things in his creation. He's able to see the condition of the human heart. This is the penetrating vision of God. This is the penetrating vision of our creator that can see into the heart of man. And so when we try to hide and pretend to be righteous, it doesn't fool him. And then in verse 15, It says, his feet were like a fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Brass, you probably know, is a composite metal, and it's produced and purified through fire. And part of the meaning intended is the purity of God. And the other part of the meaning is that even his feet declare the glory of God. Now, I want you to stop and think about our Lord's feet. It's kind of a a weird thing to think about, isn't it, Twinkle Toes? Kind of weird thing to think about feet in church. But these are the same feet that walked this earth. These are the same feet that were washed with the tears of a sinner in Luke 7. These are the feet that were wounded on the cross. And now we see them standing in the midst of the lampstands. And it says, his voice is the sound of many waters. If you stand next to the rushing water, if you stand next to a waterfall, the noise of the water, it drowns you out. Anyone that is trying to speak, they can't hear because that rushing sound. No one will be able to speak against Christ. That's what it's telling us. No one will be able to speak against Christ. His voice drowns out the voices of men. See, John is describing something for his church. He's describing the authority and the power of God, the voice of the Son of God. And he continues in verse 16, where he says, He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining its strength. When the right hand is spoken of in Scripture, it represents 
authority, the right to act. When the right hand is mentioned, that's what it's talking about. When something is in the hand, the thought is ownership, ownership, possession. Think of John 10, 28, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them, where? Out of my hand. Why? Because Christ owns his church. He controls his church. Son of man controls the seven stars. They belong to him. And verse 20 is going to tell us that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, showing that these seven, seven stars in his right hand demonstrates his absolute control. Now, this idea, this idea of a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, the sword represents the very word of God. Certainly, you know this from other scriptures. Isaiah eleven fourteen teaches us, speaking of Christ, it says, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And then, of course, what do we see in Revelation 19? In Revelation 19, when the Lord returns at the end of the tribulation, verse 15, it records this. It says, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. All it will take, all it will take is his spoken word to strike down those who have gathered against him. The last part of verse 16 back in our text it reads, and his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. For John, John had seen this once before at the transfiguration. Some 65 years before this, John had witnessed this before. Because if you go over to Matthew 17 and look at it, it teaches us that Jesus took who? Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Olives. And then Matthew records in verse 2, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. John got to see this a second time. He got to see it again. He got to see it in Revelation chapter 1. So think of the brightness of the sun in the summer. Just go outside in the middle of the day right now. Think of how bright it would be to look directly straight at the sun. And that's the image that John wants us to understand in Revelation 1 when thinking of the radiance and the glory of Christ. The glory of God is on display. So let's pick it up with verse 17. It says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. Comforting words here in Scripture. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. If you don't get excited by these verses, I question whether you understand them. John was now falling at the feet of the Savior, the Savior that he had once walked with. This is the disciple who at one point had leaned on the breast of the Savior, but now John is falling at the feet of the Savior. Abraham had done that. Ezekiel, Daniel, they all fell at the feet of the Lord. We will do the same one day. Now it was John's turn. John is now in the presence of the glorified Son of God whose power and majesty were on display. And when John testifies that he fell at his feet as dead, all that this means is that John was completely face down on the ground. John looked as if all life had gone completely out of him. But the Lord, the Lord in nothing but love, put his hand on John and said to him, Do not, do not be afraid. 
be struck in your own mind, in your own understanding, by the understanding that when John stood face to face with Jesus Christ, he fell at his feet like a dead man. See, I wonder if we have a biblical view of Jesus. I wonder what would happen to our worship our individual worship, our prayer, our lives, how we live, if we understood the full majestic power and glory of the Savior. And notice the wording. It says, do not be afraid. Why? Not just do not be afraid. That's easy to say. But do not be afraid, Jesus says, because of who I am. Jesus says, I am the first and the last. See, that's why we don't have to be afraid. Powerful words from the Savior. The idea of God referring to himself as I am, it goes way back into the heart of the Old Testament. Listen to Isaiah 48, verse 12, a beautiful text. It says, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called, I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. And don't we see these same words from the Savior in John 8, 58? where Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The Son of Man is eternal. The Son of Man is untouched by time. And he says in verse 18 of Revelation, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. The Son of Man is the living one. I hope you understand that. And the Son of Man is the risen one. The one that John had seen dead and pierced was alive forevermore. The Lord Jesus Christ will never die. And the Lord testifies here. He says, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. The idea of holding keys, it gives the idea of having authority Christ has authority over death. Christ has authority over Hades. Through his death and resurrection, Satan has been defeated, and now Christ holds absolute authority over death. Jesus is testifying that he alone is the absolute master of everything that might threaten us, whether through the body or through the soul. See, if we're in Christ, we really shouldn't fear death, should we? If we're in Christ, we really shouldn't fear Hades because we will not be heading there. Satan loves to use, Scripture says, the fear of death. But for those who have salvation in Christ, we no longer need to give in to the fear that comes. Christ and Christ alone has the keys of Hades and of death. Now, right now, right now, Scripture teaches Hades continues to hold the souls of the unredeemed until body and soul are reunited and sinners stand for the final judgment before the great white throne. And then at the great white throne judgment, we learn from Revelation 20 that death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. Our last two verses in Revelation 1, they say this, write the things which you have seen and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. I've told you before that verse 19 is the absolute key to unlocking this book. Let me show you what I mean. Notice that we have three specific, specific statements right here of what John was to record. This is the Lord himself dividing up the book for us into three different sections. How nice is that? And each section is marked by the repetition of the word things. 
First, we have the things which you have seen. This points us back to the things that John has already seen up to this point. The subject has been the Lord Jesus Christ communicating with his servant John. The second statement in verse 19 is the things which are. The present tense verb makes it clear that these are the things that existed right then at that time. This is what we're going to see in chapters 2 and 3 as Christ addresses his seven churches. The last statement and the things which will take place after this. This is the third group and it clearly follows the first two groups in time. And the words after these things are found different times, ten different times in the book of Revelation. Ten different times we see this in Revelation. And they always, without exception, represent a sequence. See, John makes it clear to us when this next section begins. He tells us, because John starts chapter 4, verse 1, which is after the seven messages to the churches that existed in that day by saying this. He says, after these what? Things I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven. The third section of this book, which deals with the future, begins at chapter 4, verse 1. And Revelation 119 is the key that unlocks the book of Revelation. If you ignore it, you are going to be left confused and having a hard time. Now in verse 20, our final verse, the mystery is the meaning of the vision. That's what it's talking about. A mystery, you guys know this by now, we've taught you this. A mystery in the Bible is something that is beyond the reach of our normal human understanding. It's beyond our understanding that can now be understood through the teaching ministry of the Spirit of God himself because God has chosen to reveal it to us. And the teaching in this verse is about the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands. And the lampstands go back to verses 12 and 13 where we see Christ standing in the midst of the churches, in the midst of the lampstands. The lampstands represent those seven churches. But then we have these seven stars, seven stars which are in that right hand of the Lord. They're the angels of the seven churches. Now, most of us know, most of us know that the word angel simply means messengers. And one idea that is often given in relation to this text is that these angels, these are angels of God who are sent to protect the churches. And it could be, but I don't think it is. Because I don't think the grammar allows for this to be the intended meaning of God. If you look ahead to chapter 2, and if you look ahead to chapter 3, the address to each church begins by saying, to the angel of the church of. Think of verse 1 in chapter 2. It says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Verse 8, it says, to the angel of the church of Smyrna. Write this. This is a pattern that we see for all seven churches. Messages that clearly include the angel of the church. And most of the rebukes of these two chapters are second person singular. Yeah, I know it's grammar. Who likes grammar, especially on a Sunday morning? But it means something. It means that the messages look first at the messengers and then through them to the churches that they represent. In other words, these seven churches, including the messengers, are being rebuked by the Lord for their sin. Angels that have not fallen don't sin. Last time I checked in the scripture. And they don't need to repent. And so it would seem to be the case if these were angels of God. Now, let me throw something else at you. And then we'll move on. If these were angels, wouldn't this be a strange way to kind of communicate? I just want you to stop and think about this. Because then it means that Christ is sending his message to angels through the Apostle John so that it may reach the churches 
through these angels. It doesn't make sense that God would send a message to the churches through his angels by having John write a letter to the angels. That's a little weird. These were men, I, I believe, and I believe that they were messengers to the churches. And we certainly see something very consistent with this in the New Testament, where the churches would send messengers to the apostles to help them out, to minister to them. Listen to a couple of verses. Philippians 2.25, it says, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but who? Your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Paul was under house arrest in Rome, and so Epaphroditus was sent as a messenger from the church at Philippi. And then over in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, listen to verse 23. It says, if anyone inquires about Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker concerning you. Or if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches of the glory of Christ. See, John, John had ministered to the churches of Asia for decades. He had been there for decades. That's a long time. And I think those churches, I think what happened here is those churches, they sent some messengers to him to help him in his old age and in his time of need, just as the churches had helped Paul so many years before when he was under arrest. As representatives of those churches, what was said to them was meant for the entire church. And I believe what we have in this passage is that Christ is explaining to John that the seven stars represent the seven messengers of these churches, men who are coming to help John and then return home with the teaching of Christ to them. And so I just think that the image that we have is Christ standing in the midst of the lampstands, Christ standing in the midst of his glorious churches. Author Dennis Rainey, he wrote about the short life of his granddaughter, Molly. Poor Molly was born with a brain aneurysm. Molly, she only lived seven days. That's it. And as difficult as those seven days were, Molly's parents and grandparents, they, they held firmly to their trust in God, confident of God's eternal love and plan. But then something else happened. Dennis and his wife went on a vacation. They went on a vacation in southwest England. And they came across a little town, just nothing of a town, really, a little town called St. Burian. And it wasn't much. It just was one of those little towns that had a pub and a decaying church and then a graveyard. So they stopped, and I've done this. Maybe it's weird, I don't know. But they stopped, and they started reading the tombstones. Have you ever done that? I've done it many, many times. The old ones are pretty cool. And they stopped and started reading some of these gravestones. And then they, they found one that could barely even be read. And that's when you know you have an old one. That's when you know it's getting good. And it, this tombstone, it remembered a family that had lived way back, way back in the 1600s. And buried beneath this stone was the mother who gave birth to a son before she died just 10 days later at the age of 24. Her son was also buried there, who lived 13 months before he died. And then the father, who died a few days later at the age of just 25. Here's what's so impressive. The faded words on that weathered limestone grave marker moved Dennis and his wife so deeply, so deeply that they took these words, they copied these words. They had these same words etched into their granddaughter's tombstone. And these were the words, the words that said, We cannot, Lord, thy purpose see. But all is well that's done by thee. You see, faith, faith is the confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in his power. 
so that even when his power does not serve my end, my wishes, what I want in life, my confidence in him remains because of who he is. In this teaching in Revelation, we saw today that Christ has the key, the key of Hades and death. And I've told you guys this before, how important this understanding is. Hear me again. The fact that he holds the key to death means that no one dies unless he takes that key and he puts it into the door. No one can kill me unless Christ puts the key in the door. No sickness can kill me. No pandemic can kill me unless Christ puts the key in the door. And no team of doctors can save me if Christ chooses to use that key. Because Jesus knows the right time, the perfect time, to use the key in the door for every single one of us. But when death does come, what do we do? Well, let us know that a glorious future awaits the redeemed in Christ. Look to the day when Christ will descend from heaven with a shout and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet who? The Lord in the air. And thus, as Paul testifies, we shall always be, and hold on to this truth all week long, we shall always be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory to God. Let's pray. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.